So this is our uh, continuing reading of uh, Simon Dong's Individuation in the Live Notions of Form and Information. Um, we're starting at page 62 of the translation. Um, we're in um, oh, chapter two, okay. So yeah, last time we uh, we started the, the chapter, uh, we had the, the examples of the pendulum systems, uh, the, the different types of pendulum, and the way that uh, potential energy is present in those systems. And uh, so one of the key points that he made in that part that we read last week is that uh, potential energy is always relative to a system um, in the sense that it, uh, it has to do with the possible transformations of a system, uh, but it, it doesn't mean that it's not real, that it's uh, something that's only um, an artifact of our knowledge of, this, of the system or something like that. Um, so potential energy is a real property of a system. Um, it doesn't depend on us uh, as observers, but it's uh, it's always relative to a particular system. Yeah, so that, that was sort of the key point of the first bit that we read last week. Um, and we'll see more about potential energy and how it relates to um, the structuring of, of a system uh, as we continue reading today. Uh, so I'll get started. Yet, if we consider the exchanges of energy implicated in state changes, like melting, vaporization, and crystallization, we will notice the appearance of particular cases of irreversibility bound to the changes of the system structure. When looking closely at a crystalline structure, for example, we can clearly see how the ancient notion of the elements has to give way to a theory that is both structural and energetic. The continuity of liquid and gaseous states allows us to unify these two states in the shared domain of fluid in the homogeneous state. By contrast, this domain of the homogeneous state is clearly separate due to the frontier constituted by the curve of saturation from non-homogeneous states. And there we have our diagrams, which I'll come back to in a minute. Between the crystalline and amorphous states, there is an evident discontinuity that we can liken to what exists between an energy of the macroscopic order and an equal energy in absolute value, but of the microscopic order, like the thermal energy in which the aforementioned example has been able to degrade during an irreversible transformation. Indeed, according to Temen's hypothesis, the crystalline state would be characterized by the existence of privileged directions in crystallized substances. The properties of these substances present different values following the direction in question. Such are the properties clarified by the study of the geometrical form of crystals and the various manifestations of crystalline anisotropy. The amorphous state, on the contrary, which includes gaseous liquid or vitreous amorphous solid states, is characterized by the absence of privileged directions. The properties of amorphous substances present values that do not depend on the considered direction. A body in the amorphous state there does not possess a determined geometrical form and is isotropic. Only an external action, such as a non-uniform pressure, a pulling, a twisting, or the existence of an electrical or magnetic field can render a body amorphous, uh, sorry, that should, that should be, can render an amorphous body, is what that should be. Uh, particularly a vitreous, temporarily anisotropic body. Um, if an amorphous body is represented as a body in which the constitutive particles are arranged in a disorganized way, we can suppose that the crystal, on the contrary, is a body in which the elementary particles, atoms or groups of atoms, are arranged according to organized distributions called crystalline networks. Brave acknowledges a distribution of the various elements or chemical groups of a crystal in terms of a system in which each point represents the center of gravity of these various elements or chemical groups. This simplified expression supposes the element or chemical group to be immobile. If it is animated by a vibration, the regular point represents the average position around which the element vibrates, 
This is its position of equilibrium. All these systems of regular points can be obtained by the juxtaposition of parallelopithetic networks containing nothing but elements or chemical groups of the same nature that are ranked according to their symmetries in the 32 classical groups of crystals. The crystals and isotropy is understood in this way. So these networks can be divided into systems of planes passing through the various regular points of the network in question, insofar as each system is constituted by a set of planes that are parallel with and equidistant to one another. These systems of planes correspond to privileged directions along which the crystal's limitative surfaces can be arranged. Accepting Bravet's theory, Tamen completes this representation of the differences between the states of matter by assimilating the amorphous solids with liquids that are endowed with a large amount of viscosity and rigidity. This reveals that there is a veritable continuity between the solid and liquid states of a vitreous body. For example, at the normal temperature of its usage, glass presents an exceptional rigidity. When the glass blower raises the temperature, both the rigidity and the viscosity of the glass progressively diminishes until at a very high temperature, what remains is a veritable liquid. Uh, I'll stop here um, because this is again a, a big long multi-page paragraph. Um, uh, so let's go back a little bit and uh, go over some of these diagrams. Um, so you should be able to see my screen um, um, uh, showing the diagram uh, or you can look on your own PDF. Um, so the first one uh, labeled figure five is the, the, the one to, uh, to look at. Um, uh, so what this shows, uh, so we have temperature along the x-axis and pressure along the y-axis. Um, and then we have uh, the different curves of, uh, of uh, transformations of, of phase of, of matter um, along uh, those two dimensions of, of temperature and pressure. Um, so we have uh, so there are multiple states um, that the liquid, sorry, the substance can be in. Um, it doesn't it doesn't mention what substance in particular this is, but uh, it's sort of an example substance, I suppose. Um, so in the bottom right hand corner, we have the gaseous state. Uh, above that, we have the liquid state, um, and then to mm -hmm. the left, we have the crystalline state, uh, and then along the the bottom uh, the bottom left we have the um, vitreous state. The, the difference between the crystalline and the vitreous state is, is uh, the important one here, or one of, one of the, the key ones here, because um, these are two different forms of solid. Um, so uh, in a crystalline solid, you have um, a regular repeated structure. Uh, Courbe is a curve. Um, so you have a... a a regular repeated structure in a crystalline state, um, um, meaning that it's it's anisotropic. So in certain directions, you have uh, um, so that there's a, a privileged direction to the uh, to the substance. So some, uh, uh, if you proceed at a certain angle, then you get a, a repeating structure. But if you proceed at a different angle, then you you get you don't get that same repeating structure. So so it's. Uh, the substance is not the same in all directions. There, there are privileged uh, uh, directions within the, sub, the mass of the substance. Uh, so that's, that's the crystalline state. Um, and then the vitreous state is an amorphous solid. So it, it's, uh, an, it's isotropic, meaning that it has the same structure in all directions. Um, there, there's no privileged directions within the, the mass of the substance. And, uh, so, and the name vitreous, um, 
suggests uh, glass as an example. Um, so glass uh, has a, a, a vitreous structure. Um, um, so it's uh, it's not um, it, it's not crystalline in in this in that sense. Uh, it doesn't have a repeating uh, uh, structure. And one of the uh, characteristics of uh, vitreous substances or of the vitreous state as opposed to the crystalline state is that vitreous um, vitreous substances don't have a, a, a discrete melting point, um, whereas a crystalline uh, solid, um, it, it has a, a discrete melting point, a, a point where it transitions to the liquid state. As we can see on this diagram, we have the, uh, the line going from F1 to L to F3 um, along that uh, dark filled in line there. Um, we have a transition from the crystalline state to the liquid state. Um, whereas um, the vitreous state uh, doesn't have a discrete transition to a liquid, uh, a liquid state. It, um, it just sort of progressively gets softer and softer. Um, so like glass, if you start heating it, it will get softer and more um, malleable. Uh, and then at a certain point, you can say it's liquid, but there's no, um, there's no discrete transition point. There's no melting points in, in the way that other substances have. Um, and so what, what this diagram shows is that um, the, these transitions of states uh, are, um, uh, they're a function of both temperature and pressure so that uh, it has to, there has to be, um, there has to be um, uh, a combination of the correct um, pressure and temperature uh, states in order for um, a particular state of matter to occur. Um, and uh, so yeah, the, the oval here that we have that the goes from F1, L, F3, M, N, uh, and then back down to A2, S, A1. So that, that oval um, um, sort of surrounds the, uh, the uh, crystalline state. Um, um, oh, actually, no, sorry. Uh, uh, I can't tell where the uh, boundary is supposed to be. I think maybe the crystalline state is, is just the uh, the part with the hash marks uh, up at the top. But uh, the each of these curves on here um, it represents uh, a boundary between uh, one state and the next. Um, so there's um, uh, the liquid state. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure what L stands for here. So it says L negative and L positive. Um, I'm not sure what the L is um, exactly, but um, um, yeah, we have a transition from the liquid state to the crystalline state. Um, and then we have uh, a, a, a curve from B um, along, along that curve, uh, B uh, and then a dotted line uh, and then C uh, that, that curve is labeled as the curve of vaporization of a vitreous body. So um, the um, vitreous bodies um, um, will uh, um, emit a, a gas um, from, like you, you have a, a vitreous body um, and it emits gas at a certain rate. Uh, um, so it's a certain amount uh, uh, of the vitreous substance will turn into a gas. Um, and then we also have the, the dark curve from A2S to A1. 
um, is labeled um, curve of sublimation of crystal. So um, the crystal form, uh, um, um, so the crystal state above that line um, passes directly into a gaseous state um, below that line. Uh, um, and then the other curve, um, where is that? Uh, yeah, so the, the other bit that goes from uh, A1 to C is uh, the curve of vaporization of liquid. So it's uh, the, the liquid state above the curve passing the state below the curve. I think those are all the labeled curves. Uh, Didn't you say the gaseous mistaken. is the lower right quadrant, though? Yeah. So the the um, the curve uh, going from A one to C, we have the liquid state above the curve, and then the gaseous state below it. But I, I thought I didn't understand what the the thick line, because I thought you were saying the thick line did that as well. But it's sort of on the other side of the gaseous quadrant. Yeah, so the um, the thick line, uh, so the, the gaseous quadrant uh, goes all the way along uh, from the the bottom right all the way along to, uh, uh, so it's really the bottom, I guess, not, not the bottom right. It goes all the way along to the, um, to the y-axis. Um, so there's, um, but it, it's a it transition, there's different transitions. So in the, um, in the upper right, side we have a transition from liquid to gaseous and then the thick line from a2s to a1 uh, we have a transition from uh, crystalline substance to the gaseous state and then from a2 to b uh, in in that single line um, we have um, the uh, vaporization of a, of a vitreous body um, so transition from vitreous body to a gaseous state um, uh, so there's uh, three different, there's, yeah, three different um, transitions into a gaseous state that are represented along the, the portions of that curve. Do we know what the uh, dotted, the dashed lines are? Because I was, uh, I guess at first I was thinking that the gaseous state is just a quadrant that's kind of delimited by those uh, dashed lines, but now it seems like there seem to be more like guides of some kind than actual uh it seems like the gaseous status actually has a different shape it's not just a quadrant is that am i reading that right uh yeah that's my understanding is that the so the dotted lines i think are meant to um uh indicate points along the curve so if we look at the point f1 for example uh and then you have uh, the vertical line um that proceeds from T, F1, F3, uh, and upwards. Um, and then it, the, the horizontal line from P to A to F1. Um, so it, uh, those, those dotted lines are, are um, uh, pointing out that, that point F1 and, and where, it's, um, where it, it's located on the temperature and pressure um, um, axes. Uh, the other dotted lines, I'm not sure what exactly they're doing, the ones that are inside the oval. Um, so we have um, uh, delta V minus, delta V plus. Um, so uh, delta normally means change. Um, so change in um, 
volume, I suppose. I'm not sure um, what uh, what it is here. Um, okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, the the you have a change in volume, um, um, which is, uh, as you go from a, a, a higher pressure to a, a lower pressure, um, you have a, a change of volume. Um, and then you have um, the L, I'm not sure what the L stands for actually, um, but there's L negative and L positive is what it says on there. So I guess what he's doing, I'm just looking at the paragraph. Uh, so he's talking about these privileged directions in crystallized substances. Maybe that's what it sounds like with these dotted, these dashed dotted lines. Uh, he's somehow trying to mark those off. Um, I don't think the the dotted lines correspond to the dimensions uh, or or the the privileged directions within the crystal. Um, but what uh, so what characterizes the crystalline state um, as opposed to the vitreous state is the fact that it has um, that it has those uh, privileged uh, directions, or um, not all directions within the substance are the same uh, in terms of structure. Um, so you have one one structure uh if you if you proceed uh through um the the mass of the substance in a certain direction you have a repeating structure the the crystalline structure uh and then if you proceed at a different angle or different direction then you, you would not come across that same structure so there's a uh, um certain uh directions within the the substance are are privileged in that sense i see okay so that's with that would be within uh, within the the crystalline crystalline state, uh, so I guess he's talking about another thing. Just in the beginning of that paragraph, there is an evident discontinuity between energy of the macroscopic and the microscopic. So I guess here it seems like there is a disc discontinuity is going on between the crystalline and, and the amorphous states. Uh, and then we have within the crystalline state, we have these privileged directions, which it sounds like have to do with the uh, like the crystalline structure itself. And those are, I guess, those aren't visible on the uh, on the uh, on the diagram, but maybe something about like these crossover points between the the different states. I guess that's what we're seeing on the diagram. Yeah, that's right. The um, um, the so the diagram is in phase space, like you can say. So it, it shows uh, the different possible states of the substance. So it's not uh, it's not um, a geometrical diagram in the sense of uh, it's not in geometrical space. Uh, but then in in the crystal itself, those privileged directions are are geometrical. Um, they're in geometrical space. Uh, so that yeah, th those. Directions aren't shown on the, on the diagram, but the transition from the crystalline state to the vitreous state is shown uh, on the that line from the uh, I guess from uh, N down to A two. Um, you have the crystalline state on one side, and then the the vitreous state on the other side. Did we have a thing earlier? Some reason I'm remembering. I don't know if it was this group or not. Maybe another discussion. But the point about water. Uh, you know, water goes from, it changes state, but it doesn't do it kind of smoothly. It has like a sudden transition at a certain temperature. Uh, 
and uh, uh, and I guess I guess going to show that it's you know there are these discontinuities maybe or these like sort of singular points. That's what I'm. Um, that's sort of is resonating. I mean, I've I know uh, Simon Don talks about singular points quite a bit, and maybe uh, maybe that's that's one of the things we're seeing here. Yeah, so in the case of water, um, the ice form uh, is, a, is a crystalline structure, um, as you can see just by, uh, you know, even just looking at a, a snowflake, uh, you can see the, the crystalline structure um, um, with, the, with the naked eye or, or under a, a small microscope even. Um, and uh, um, yeah, there's a, a, a discrete transition at uh, zero degrees Celsius. Um, from the liquid state to the 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 crystallized state, um, uh, and um, and that sorry that's at normal atmospheric pressure at, at sea level, um, because uh, as the diagram shows, the the uh, temperature and pressure are both involved or, or both um, uh, affect the uh, the outcome, um, and then so that and that's so that's what characterizes. Uh, uh, water uh, or ice as a, a crystalline substance, um, whereas with vitreous substances, there's no discrete transition points. Uh, so you have um, just a, a, a piece of glass, uh, as you heat it, it will become more, it becomes softer and more uh, liquid-like. Um, and then uh, eventually you can pour it and, and so on like, like a liquid, but if there's no, um, discrete transition point between the liquid state and a solid state. Uh, one thing that helped me understand this section, um, and really only when I got to the end of it, was uh, to remember that the section that came before this, he was talking about the pendulums and the way that uh, potential energy is converted into kinetic energy and then back, um, whereas in or different potential energies are converted into each other without a change in the structure of the system, whereas here, for the potential energy to transform, uh, the structure of the system itself changes. Right, yeah, that's a, a helpful um, reminder um, of sort of where we are in the, uh, um, in the arguments of the chapter. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so he's, he's looking at uh, um, irreversible um, transformations. Uh, so in the case of the pendulum, it was a reversible transformation of the system uh, where you have um, uh, the swing of the pendulum back and forth. Um, uh, you have a transition from, uh, or, or you have a, a transformation from potential energy into kinetic energy and then back into potential energy as the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, uh, and it's a reversible transformation as long as you abstract away from uh, friction. Um, um, but in the cases that we're looking at here, these are um, irreversible transformations of uh, um, uh, of, of state of, of matter. Um, um, so it, it's uh, or they're not not so much irreversible, but to to reverse them requires a, a input of more energy um, to uh, to uh, take a. Um, uh, ice and turn it back into water uh, requires an input of more energy. Um, so it's not it's not a reversible transformation in the sense that the pendulum uh, transformation of, of energy is. Oh, maybe one one more point before we move on. Um, so he mentions um, 
he mentions here the uh, I think it's thirty two um, uh, structures of a uh, of a crystal. Uh, yeah, thirty two classical groups of crystals. Um, so yeah, the the um, uh, the structure of crystals can be represented using uh, groups, um, the mathematical object, uh, a group, um, and uh, um, there there are, uh, uh, I guess, 32. I, I didn't know the exact number, but there's a, a certain uh, limited number of um, possible crystal, crystalline structures. Uh, so different chemical substances will crystallize in different forms, um, um, like a, a cube, a cube structure is one. Uh, sodium has a, a cubic structure, um, um, but um, um, yeah, different different substances have uh, have different uh, crystalline structures, um, and each of those structures can be modeled as a, a group. Um, so there's a um, a very uh, direct um, mathematical description of that structure. So I'm curious about that point. I'm wondering um, how he would think that uh, in terms of... So it seems like when we have the crystallization happening, that is an individuation process, right? Like we're kind of witnessing individuation sort of coming into being. Uh, like in the, the, uh, the video that uh, it was, was it Angus who posted a little bit further up um so yeah the sulfur sulfur crystallization okay so and it seems like simondon would say those structures like the way the crystals form you know the, the geometry of the crystal is somehow maybe there in a pre-individual state like in a virtual state before the 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 crystallization happens when we still have the metastable liquid. Somehow, it seems like um, there is the, there is maybe information about the way the crystal needs to form because it always forms the same way, right? There's some, uh, as as far as I understand, anyway. Uh, it seems like those are certain; those are patterns, right? Certain fixed ways that the crystals form. And, uh, and I guess, you know, in terms of the ontology that, that he's developing, I guess what we're seeing there is there's some pre-individual information maybe and maybe certain singular points that are kind of uh, there in a virtual way. And then when the conditions are right, they, they kind of they, they actualize. Yeah, the uh, I think that's mostly correct. The only thing I would um, um, maybe change is that, um, uh, as we'll see in a little bit, there are some substances that um, that can crystallize in more than one way. Um, so it's not um, it's not always the same crystalline structure, um, and uh, it can uh, it can so the same uh, solution can crystallize in a more than one. Um, crystalline structure, and so um, because of that possibility, um, I would say that so it's not so much that uh, it's not so much that the um, the uh, eventual crystalline stru structure is sort of virtually present already in the solution, um, but uh, because 
in in those cases where you have um, more than one possible crystalline structure, there's a a, a sort of uh, historicity, I guess you could say, to to the the um, uh, the process of crystallization because uh, which form will result depends on uh, which form gets introduced into the solution as the germ crystal. Um, it will crystallize in one way if, if it has a crystal of, of a certain structure and crystallize in, in another way if the germ crystal is of a different structure. Um, uh, and so it, it's, it's dependent on the history of that individual portion of, uh, of matter. Um, so um, I think maybe how I would want to express it is that there already is a, a structure in uh, even in the um, um, the supersaturated solution before crystallization. It already has a structure of a certain kind, um, but um, that structure uh, is is transformed by the crystallization uh, and appears at a higher um, level, a higher order of magnitude. Um, so whereas uh, the uh, the solution has only a, a microscopic structure. The uh, crystal that results um, has a, a macroscopic structure. Um, so I think I think it's um, uh, a transformation of scale um, rather than uh, um, something like a, a virtual structure that was already present in the uh, solution. I see. Okay. So I guess part of the point is, I mean, the way I'm thinking about this, uh, it seems like, as far as I know, the geometry uh, is somehow already present on the level of each each molecule. Isn't that right? Uh, because of, I suppose, the chemical bonds and uh, just the arrangement of the atoms in a molecule. And then it seems like as the conditions change, you know, those, that geo molecular geometry kind of gets, uh, I guess, translated, like you're saying, in, in, on this, uh, on a macro level, you know, of the, you know, the salute, like the entire beaker, let's say. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is between the uh, molecular structure um, and the, uh, the crystalline structure. Um, um, like if there's some sort of um, parallelism or something like that between the two. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to um, say one way or the other uh, exactly how that works, but um, um, the, the molecular structure at least uh, determines the, the crystalline structure um, or it, um, it, um, it produces a, uh, uh, or it limits the possible um, crystalline structures that, that can appear in the solution uh, eventually. Um, um, but yeah, I don't know the exact relationship between um, the molecular structure and the, uh, um, uh, the crystalline structure. Um, but I think we should go on so we don't get uh, sort of bogged down on, on just this one uh, passage. Uh, so if someone else would like to read, starting from uh, the top of 65, uh, the milky melting characteristic. The milky melting characteristic of amorphous solids never shows two distinct phases. Thus, Tamman considers the amorphous solid as a liquid whose rigidity and viscosity have been sufficiently reached due to extremely high temperatures. The theoretical consequences of Tamman's hypothesis are quite important. A liquid that experiences a reduction of temperature without passing to the crystalline state 
is continually transformed into a vitreous body. It, there, it is therefore in a state of supercooling. Experiments on piperine, C17H903N, and Btol, C10H7CO2C6H4OH, which are substances that melt at 128 degrees Celsius and 95 degrees Celsius, respectively, and easily remain in supercooling, have confirmed this hypothesis. But the mere consideration of the structures corresponding to the various states is incomplete and leaves behind an indetermination. This consideration must be completed by the study of the different energetic levels linked to each state and of the exchanges of energy that are produced during the state changes. Taman's theory has an exemplary value because it leads to a study of the correlation between structural changes and energetic changes. In fact, it allows us to determine the conditions and the limits of the stability of crystalline and amorphous states. There are many bodies that can be present in the crystalline state or the amorphous state. Yet depending on, the on temperature and pressure conditions, sometimes the crystalline state is stable while the amorphous state is metastable and sometimes vice versa. The passage from the metastable state to the stable state gives rise to a determinate thermal effect and to a determinate volumetric effect. This important consequence of Taman's theory can be represented by figure five. If we begin with substance in the state of stable equilibrium under a pressure P, uh, sorry, P, yeah, P, and if we progressively lower the temperature by maintaining this constant pressure, the representative points will be displaced from right to left on F1 P parallel to the axis of temperatures. If the representative point enters into the domain of stability of the crystalline state, the liquid in question will be in the metastable state. In this state, the supercooled liquid can pass to the crystalline state, and this passage depends on two factors. The power of spontaneous crystallization that this liquid presents, defined by the number of crystalline germs that spontaneously appear in a set time within a given volume of liquid, and on the other hand, the speed of crystallization, i.e. the speed at which a crystalline germ develops. Right. So this, the other um, element of that diagram that uh, we didn't mention is um, the, the question of which of these states are stable and which ones are, are metastable. Um, so that, um, that delta V minus delta V plus um, was the volumetric effect that he mentioned. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, volumetric effect. Um, and then I'm guessing that the L negative, L positive uh, in, on the other um, axis is the thermic effect that he uh, mentioned. Um, so some substances will uh, um, release energy when they uh, release heat uh, when, they, uh, when they crystallize or absorb heat when they crystallize and so on. Uh, there's different thermic effects, which I don't really know enough about in detail. Yeah, so some, some of the states that are depicted on this diagram are stable uh, and, and others are metastable. Okay, um, I don't really have much to say about that, that bit. Um, so I think we can go on to uh, uh, the rest of this uh, continuing giant paragraph. Uh, the state of supercooling is easy to bring about if the maxima of these two factors, depending on the temperature, are sufficiently distant from one another such that one of the factors corresponds to a practically null value of the other factor. At this point, since these two factors both tend towards zero when the temperature continues to decrease, it is possible to cross quite rapidly through region two, 
which corresponds to a small but non-null probability of crystallization, and to arrive at region 3, for which the chances of crystallization are practically null, figure 6. While the liquid is in the metastable state, we can initiate crystallization, which is brought about with an emission of heat. This crystallization makes it possible to measure a latent heat of crystallization, which is the difference between the caloric capacity of the mass considered in the amorphous state and that of the same mass considered in the crystallized state, multiplied by the variation of temperature, dL equals, or uh, delta L equals, Ca minus C, C times delta T. Um, however, since the specific heat of a substance held in the crystalline state is inferior to the specific heat of this same substance held in the liquid or amorphous state, the latent heat of crystallization varies in the same direction as the temperature. It diminishes when the temperature lowers, thus for a sufficient lowering of temperature, what will happen is that the latent heat of crystallization is nullified and then changes sign. The line MS of figure 5 represents the location of the representative points for which the latent heat of crystallization is null, depending on the various values that, can, that the pressure, which is constant for the same experiment, can take. Uh, not sure, maybe stop here or take it to the end quite a bit. Um, I think you can go ahead to the end of the, of the page. Okay. Uh, do you mind uh, stopping me at some, I don't have the, um, I have a e-reader version, so I don't have the page. Oh, okay. Uh, um, sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know where to stop then. Sure. Perfect. Uh, now, let's consider the same liquid substance in the stable state at temperature T, which is in the domain of stabil stability of the liquid state. If the pressure increases, we enter the domain of stability of the crystalline state. Since the liquid is then in the metastable state, the possible crystallization will correspond for each pressure considered with a variation, uh, delta V, of the volume that accompanies this transformation. If Vc and Va are the respective volumes of the considered mass of the substance, whether in the crystallized state or in the amorphous state, then we get the formula d delta V equals dVa minus dVc. If the variation of volume is affected in the direction of a contraction of the plus sign, it will be found that, as in the case of the latent heat of melting, Delta V diminishes when the pressure increases because a substance held in the amorphous state is more compressible than in the crystallized state. For a sufficient increase of pressure, Delta V can be nullified and then change sign. The curve LN of figure 5 is the set of points for which the variation of volume is null. Below this curve, Delta V is positive contraction. Above this curve, delta V is negative, dilation. From the limits of the variation of the latent heat of crystallization and of the variation of volume, we can deduce the form of the crystallization melting curve. Along this curve, there are two triple points, A1 and A2, for which the crystal 
the amorphous body, and the gas could coexist in mutual equilibrium. Okay, you can stop there. That's great. Sure. Yeah, so um, this is still dealing with that same diagram. Um, um, and yeah, so I was I was right um, that the, uh, the line um, M to S, uh, that dotted line, and uh, going through the oval region um, is the the region of the thermic effect. Um, it's the line along which the uh, latent heat is null. Um, um, so where where there's um, there's no uh, release of uh, of heat uh, in crystallization. Um, but then yeah, so there's also discussion of. Uh, Figure six. Um, if uh, let me just go back to that for a second. Um, there we go. Um, so yeah, figure six shows the three regions um, in relation to temperature. Um, uh, uh, so temperature along the x-axis, and then the y-axis is the um, capacity of crystallization. Um, and so there's two properties that um, that determine the crystallization is uh, the the likelihood of a germ forming spontaneously, uh, and then the speed with which uh, the solution will crystallize around a germ. Um, and those two properties vary with temperature, um, but they have uh, their peaks are at different points uh, for this particular substance. Um, so that, um, that means that there's a, a region, uh, which is region two in that diagram, um, there's a region where they overlap, uh, so they aren't they aren't at um, a peak, uh, but they, there's an overlap so that um, there's both uh, a likelihood of uh, of the, the crystal crystalline germ, the crystal germ of uh, forming, and then also um, a likelihood of uh, or a, a speed of um, crystallization around that germ. Uh, so it's region two is the, the region where the crystallization process is most likely to happen. Uh, region three is, uh, is the region um, uh, below or in which uh, it, there's, the temperature is too low for um, crystalline germs to form uh, in the first place. So that it, the substance is not going to crystallize in that region. If we assign to the variation yeah, of volume in the sense of a contraction, yeah, the plus sign. In and out, we're thinking maybe. Um, so uh, meaning that um, it's essentially that arbitrary it's whether you want to use the plus sign to describe uh, a contraction of volume or a uh, 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 expansion of volume. Um, but in this case, we're going to assign the plus sign to the um, uh, contraction. Okay, good. Um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so I was just mentioning uh, a translation uh, translation is, issue um, where I think um, there's a better translation. Um, um, hopefully, everyone got that part. Um, it's not a it's not a big deal. It's just sort of a, a one little sentence uh, in passing. Yeah, I don't have much to say about this bit. I don't know if anyone else has any points. That oh, uh, so you didn't hear the the translation point. Um, so it was a sentence um, uh, uh, about three quarters of the way down on page 66. The, the, the sentence, if the variation of volume is affected in the direction of a contraction of the plus sign. Um, so that bit, I think, would be better translated as um, 
if we assign the plus sign to the variation of volume in the direction of a contraction. Um, I think that um, is a better translation and makes sense of that, of that passage better. I wanted to ask something uh, just about this section. And I mean, I'm really curious uh, exactly what he is doing here in the sense of, uh, so, you know, my first impression is, wow, this reads like a graduate level textbook in, you know, I don't know, physics maybe, or I'm not sure what the field would be exactly probably like state whatever part of physics studies, you know, the states of matter and so on. Um, but, but he is using it, you know, for a, a philosophical purpose. Um, and so I'm very curious, like what exactly is going on? Like not, I don't mean uh, just, you know, the, the specific sort of, um, uh, you know, like, what do the different variables mean? What are the relationships? Uh, and, but, but kind of, um, like, maybe on the level of method, uh, I don't really know even how to ask, how to ask it. But I guess my thought, though, is it seems like what he's doing in passages like these, he is kind of demonstrating this intuition that he's talking about. You know, the way that we can actually sort of penetrate into the process of individuation, you know, this ontogenesis, this like structurations and the various, you know, relations between elements and the way, you know, energy kind of shifts uh, between the disparate domains. You know, it seems like he's kind of enacting that, that kind of knowledge in passages like these. Um, and so in a way it reads, it reads a lot like phenomenology, you know, there is this descriptive aspect to it, but it's also very material, right? It's very like focused on matter, the, you know, the, uh, these material relationships. And so it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I don't think I've really read philosophy like this before. Um, it reminds me of phenomenology. Like I was thinking, you know, Sartre has that famous passage of the waiter in the cafe, right? Pierre. And he gives a lot of these, a lot of description, right? But it's very different. Like it's very different from this kind of like really, um, sort of, uh, like really concrete material, physical description. And it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, um, how to make sense of it. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, because you're right that the, uh, the methodology that he's using here is quite different than, um, um, say a phenomenological one. Um, um, but so it, it, we can compare them in a the sense that they're both, um, rely on, a, something like a, a thick description, um, uh, of, of whatever phenomenon is, is being, uh, discussed. They, yeah, they're, they're different in the sense that this is a, um, 
uh, description that relies on uh, scientific knowledge rather than um, something like uh, lived experience uh, in the case of phenomenology. Um, and um, uh, I think I think this comes out of sort of the, the French epistemology tradition, um, people like Bachelard um, that, uh, um, and, and Cantillem, I, I think maybe as well, though I, I'm less familiar with his work, um, but um, it was a, a, a tradition within French philosophy that hasn't really um, sort of trans translated over into the Anglophone world in, in the same way as some other uh, French traditions did. Um, um, but it, it, uh, it tended to have um, this very close relationship with um, scientific uh, uh, theorization um, and, uh, and uh, description. Um, and I think maybe at a, um, on the question of methodology, um, so part of his criticism of the hylomorphic schema was precisely that, that lack of uh, specificity, um, the way that it leaves the interaction between form and matter as this uh, dark zone uh, between the two. Um, so uh, in order for, for that criticism to be, uh, or in order for his, his theory not to fall victim to that same criticism, he has to um, have a very detailed account of the, uh, of, um, um, of um, the actual physical processes that he's talking about. So our knowledge of individuation has to be something that um, that can be very detailed uh, in this physical sense, um, not just something that uh, um, is sort of um, um, at a level of generality. Um, yeah, Foucault maybe would be a good comparison as well because he, uh, he was also... Um, coming out of that um, epistemology tradition uh, uh, um, from, from Bachelard and, and Cantillem. Um, so yeah, there, there's a certain similarity in terms of the, uh, the very detailed analysis of uh, whatever the subject matter uh, in question is based on, um, um, uh, in, this, in this case, uh, uh, physical theory, but in, in Foucault's case, more um, in uh, human sciences. So I think may maybe another way of putting it would be that um, the, uh, the detailed analysis or the, the detailed um, descriptive, uh, uh, detailed description of these physical processes um, serves as a, a demonstration that we can have a very detailed knowledge of individuation, um, that our knowledge of individuation is not, um, is not at the level of, of uh, a generality like form and matter, um, but we can we can actually enter into that process of individuation in our, our in our knowledge. Seems like maybe there's even a um, you know some philosophy is supposed to have a kind of or I guess most maybe much philosophy is supposed to have a kind of transformative effect on the reader, right? Uh, and uh, and I can kind of see that here, you know, like, I mean, you start reading this and you kind of get, ex like, you kind of get pulled into this world of, like, strange <laughs> processes that, you know, I mean, I've never thought about the, them before, you know, this particular, um, and, like, all these examples are so detailed. It's, like, really getting pulled into that world of 
um, I guess it's the world of transduction, maybe the world of, you know, that middle ground between form and matter. Like um, I think it was uh, Angus who was who was saying that, um, and uh, and it's interesting how, um, yeah, I, I think there is that point somewhere about uh, almost like a slogan. I don't know if I'm saying this exactly right, but that uh, the knowledge of individuation is individuation of knowledge, and so in the knowing process. The, the the same kind of change is happening for the knower. So there's this like interlinking between epistemology and ontology. And, you know, um, and I guess, you know, as we read this, like we're kind of experiencing that change, right? Um, and because it's easy, like for me, it's sometimes easy to just gloss over it and just kind of move through these parts. And I did a lot of that when I was looking at the uh, the book on the technical objects. Um, but I'm finding like actually sinking into it has almost like a transformative effect. Yeah, I think that's, um, a good way of putting it. Um, and I think even, um, at the level of, of his writing style, like these, um, these long sentences with, uh, sequences of semicolons or these long paragraphs of, of, uh, you know, that, that cover two or three pages, um, they, they sort of, um, uh, have that tra transductive structure to them, like you, you sort of progressively are um, uh, transforming your your thinking uh, as you proceed through this sequence of semicolons or something like that. Um, um, so I think, um, I mean, I don't know to what extent this was um, uh, deliberate on his part or if he just sort of um, uh, developed this style um, in, in conjunction with his development of, of his uh, theory, um, but I think the two go together. Um, that uh, they 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 correspond to each other or they they match each other. Yeah, I think uh, we we can continue um, from uh, where we left off um, to the end of the of the section. In a the crystallization melting curve encounters both the crystals curve of sublimation a two s a one and the vitreous body's curve of vaporization, A1b. This curve of vaporization extends the liquid's curve of vaporization, A1c. Furthermore, for each pressure, there would correspond two points of crystallization melting, in which the crystal could coexist either with the liquid or with the vitreous body. For pressure, for pressure P, for example, these two points would be F1 and F2. At temperatures lower than this second point of crystallization, the representative point of the substance would again enter the domain of stability of the amorphous state. At this point, the vitreous state would be a stable state, and the crystalline state would be a metastable state with respect to the vitreous body. Undoubtedly, at these low temperatures, the speed of transformation would be so low, the speeds of transformation would be so low that they would be practically null. But this theoretical reversibility of state and metastable states nevertheless keeps all of its importance. It has not been possible to further provide evidence experimentally for point L of the maximum of the melting temperature or point M of the maximum of the melting pressure, but the experiment has shown that all the melting curves have their concavity turned toward the decreasing temperatures, and that for water, 
in several other substances, this concavity is found starting from the triple point A1 in the portion of the ascending melting curve in the direction of the decreasing temperatures. The interest of Tamman's hypothesis for the study of individuation is to establish the existence of conditions of indifferent equilibrium between two physical states, one of which is amorphous and the other of which is crystalline, i.e. states that are opposed in terms of their structures, the first of which is non-organized and the second of which is organized. The relation between two structural states uh, thus takes on an energetic sense. Indeed, the existence and the position of the triple points are determined based on considerations relative to the latent heat of crystallization and to the variation of volume according to pressure, i.e. to thermodynamic work. The limits of a structural type of domain of stability are determined by energetic considerations. This is why, in order to broach the study of physical individuation, properly speaking, we wanted to define the energetic aspect of the relation between two physical structures. An energetic characteristic is linked to every structure, but inversely, a modification of the structural characteristic of this system can correspond to any modification of the energetic conditions of this system. For a physical system, the fact of having a given structure involves the possession of an energetic determination. This energetic determination can be assimilated to a potential energy, for it only becomes manifest uh, in a transformation of the system. But unlike the potential energies studied above, which are capable of partial and progressive transformations according to an ongoing process, the potential energies linked to a structure can only be transformed and unleashed by a modification of the conditions of stability of the system that contains them. Thus, they are linked to the very existence of the system structure. This is why we shall say that potential energies corresponding to two different structures are of different orders. The only point at which they are continuous with respect to one another is the point at which they are nullified as in points A1, A2, and F1, and F2 of figure 5. In the case of a pendulum, on the contrary, where two potential energies bring about a mutual ongoing conversion, as in the Holwick-Leger pendulum, figure 2, the sum of these two energies and of the kinetic energy remains constant during the course of a transformation. The same thing even applies in the more complex case that figure 3 represents. That was the double pendulum, I think. Uh, conversely, the state changes undergone by the system forces us to consider a certain energy linked to the structure, an energy which is indeed a potential energy, but which is not capable of an ongoing transformation. For this reason, it cannot be considered suitable for the case of identity or of equality defined above. This energy can only be measured in a state change of the system. While the, state while the state remains, it is conflated with the very conditions of stability of this state. This is why we will choose to name those energies that express the limits of stability of a structural state as structural potential energies. These potential energies constitute the real source of the formal conditions of possible genesis.
So I, I think uh, I think it was Angus who posted uh, a little while ago about um, the uh, that bit uh, where he explains why why go into this uh, um, uh, discussion of, of Taman's uh, um, hypothesis. Um, and and he says here uh, the interest of the hypothesis is to is for uh, for the study of individuation is to establish the existence of um, conditions of equilibrium uh, that are indifferent between two physical states, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and it, it, so it's the uh, energetic relationship between uh, different structural states um, so that there's, um, um, there's a, a certain energy which is um, uh, required for the transformation of states uh, from, one, from one state to another. And then the um, the next or the the that last paragraph he um, explains the difference between these types of um, transformations and the the case of the pendulum or the, the different pendulum cases that he looked at before. So in those cases, you had a, a continuous transformation of uh, potential into kinetic energy and back again in in the pendulum case. Um, whereas here we have um, uh, discrete transitions uh, where energy is released or or absorbed um, uh, through the transformation of structure um, of the of the system as a whole. Um, um, so yeah, there's there's no um, there's no continuous transformation as there is in the case of the um, of the pendulum. Okay, um, so I think we can go on to the next uh, section uh, of the chapter. Um, so I can read the first little bit. Um, so the section is uh, individuation and system states. And then the subsection one is individuation and crystalline allotropic forms being in relation. We are attempting to show the validity of the notion of structural potential energy by using it as an instrument for the study of cases in which the notion of physical individuation requires a very delicate usage. And this is because these cases constitute quite a remarkable prefatory example that of crystalline allotropic forms of the same substance. It will indeed be possible in a similar case to grasp individuation not only at the most primitive level, but also at the level most exempt from any inessential logical inference. If it is possible to determine the characteristics of individuation at this level, these characteristics will be anterior to any idea of substance, since it is a question of the same body, of quality and equity. And yet, if we take up, for example, the study of the crystallization of sulfur, we shall see that it can exist in the solid state in several allotropic forms, the, the main two of which are sulfur crystallized in the orthorhombic system, octahedral sulfur, and sulfur crystallized in the monoclinic system, prismatic sulfur. At room temperature, octahedral sulfur is in a stable state. Octahedral crystals of natural sulfur can be found in certain tertiary terrains. The crystals that we prepare remain clear indefinitely. Conversely, the prismatic form is metastable with respect to the octahedral form, a crystal of this form, albeit clear when it has been, been recently prepared, becomes opaque when it is left to itself. The crystal maintains its external form, but a microscopic examination reveals that fragments uh, into a, a mosaic of juxtaposed octahedral crystals, which is where the, the observed opacity comes from. There's a word missing there. Um, the metastable state of prismatic sulfur is called crystalline supercooling. The re this relation between crystalline, prismatic, and octahedral states exists for temperatures below 95.4 degrees Celsius, 
but re reverses starting from 95.4 degrees Celsius up to 115 degrees Celsius, which is the melting temperature. In this interval, prismatic sulfur is in stable equilibrium and octahedral sulfur is in metastable equilibrium. Under atmospheric pressure, 95.4 degrees Celsius is the temperature of equilibrium between these two crystalline varieties. With this in mind, it can be asked, what does the individuality of each of these two forms consist in? What ensures the stability of these forms? What makes it so that they can both exist at a determined temperature? When either of these two forms is found in a state of metastability, a crystalline germ is required, i.e. a point of departure for crystallization, so as to help it transform into the other stable form. Everything happens as if metastable equilibrium could only be disrupted by the local deposit of a singularity contained in the crystal germ that can disrupt this metastable equilibrium. Once it has been initiated, the transformation propagates for the action that is exerted at the start between the crystalline germ and the metastable body is then exerted gradually between the transformed parts and the parts that are not yet transformed. Physicists ordinarily use a word borrowed from the vocabulary of biology to designate the action of depositing a germ. They say that the substance is inseminated with a crystalline germ. A particularly demonstrative experiment consists in placing supercooled sulfur into a U-tube then inseminating each of the, the branches of the U-tube with a crystalline germ that is octahedral on one side and prismatic on the other. The sulfur contained in each branch of the tube then crystallizes according to the crystalline system that is determined by the deposited germ. The two allotropic forms of crystallized sulfur are thus in perfect contact in the middle part of the tube. If the temperature is lower than 95.4 degrees Celsius, the sulfur remains transparent and the branch containing the octahedral sulfur becomes opaque starting with the line of contact between the two crystalline varieties. Opacity begins to manifest at the contact of these two allotropic varieties, and it gradually propagates to the point of taking over the whole branch containing the prismatic sulfur. Conversely, if the temperature is maintained between 95.4 degrees Celsius and 115 degrees Celsius, the direction of the transformation is inverted. The branch containing prismatic sulfur becomes transparent, and the branch containing octahedral sulfur becomes opaque starting with the line of contact between the two crystalline. Lastly, at a temperature of 95.4 degrees Celsius, the speed of propagation of these transformations is null. There is thus a temperature at which equilibrium is attained between these two crystalline varieties. From a certain perspective, this experiment entails the creation of a sort of competition for a finite quantity of substance between two systems. For all temperatures other than the temperature of equilibrium, and lower than the melting temperature of octahedral sulfur, one of the forms occupies the whole crystallizable substance and the other completely disappears. Yeah, if someone um, has the, the footnotes and can post them into the, the chat, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Um, or if no one has them, I can just try to translate them on the fly. Um, so footnote five um, says, uh, we must note that the formation of new crystals uh, uh, in the interior of the prismatic crystal is formed, uh, uh, occurs at a scale much smaller than that of the prismatic crystal. Uh, oh, there you go. That's in there. Never mind. I'll let, uh, I'll let you post the, uh, the, the footnotes. Right. Yeah. Footnote six, I think is, is, uh, pretty important. Um, it's, uh, um, his, his notion of transduction, uh, is, uh, sort of drawn from this example. So um, uh, this is uh, like the, the paradigm case of transduction. Uh, yeah, so um, 
as, as some other people mentioned in the chat, uh, there's this notion of allotropic forms uh, that he uses. Um, so allotropic forms are, are um, two different forms of the same chemical substance. So in this case, sulfur can crystallize in two different forms, uh, octahedral sulfur and prismatic sulfur. Um, so the two different crystalline structures. Uh, and uh, depending on the temperature, one form will be the stable state and the other one will be uh, the metastable state, um, um, which means that, um, so at room temperature, um, um, octahedral sulfur is, is, is the stable state and um, um, prismatic uh, sulfur is the metastable state. So that uh, what that means is that uh, any, any piece of sulfur, any mass of sulfur that has crystallized in the prismatic form is always susceptible to uh, uh, recrystallization or, or to transformation into the octahedral form. So the, uh, the shape of the whole um, block of crystal will stay the same, but the microstructure will change so that the, what was uh, a transparent crystal before becomes opaque um, because its microstructure has, has changed, has crystallized uh, in the, the octahedral form. Um, so, um, and then again, that, that relationship changes um, above 95.4 degrees Celsius. Um, so that um, um, uh, above, yeah, 95.4 degrees Celsius is the equilibrium temperature. So that at that state, the, neither one um, transforms into the other, neither uh, crystalline form transforms into the other. Um, but then from 95.4 degrees Celsius up to 115 degrees Celsius, um, the, uh, the prismatic sulfur is the stable state and octahedral sulfur is the metastable state. So the octahedral sulfur will, will transform into prismatic sulfur um, uh, at that level, uh, at that temperature. Um, and then he, so he gives this example. Um, uh, I wonder if there's a video of, of this somewhere, but um, where you have a, a, a tube shaped uh, in, a, in a U shape uh, and then one uh, and it's filled with um, uh, with sulfur. Um, and then one end is um, uh, you insert a, a germ crystal into each end. So and one one of them you insert an octahedral crystal and the other end you insert a, a prismatic crystal um, and then uh, the solution will, or the uh, the sulfur, sorry, will will crystallize um, in each of those forms in each end of the tube, and then uh, they meet in the middle. And then, depending on the temperature, um, one uh, one of the forms will um, uh, recrystallize the other. Okay, so I think this is um, maybe a passage where um, we need to. Uh, keep reading to the next bit to see why he's bringing up all this stuff uh, in the first place. Um, so we can go on to the next, um, uh, uh, I guess, page and a half or so, the, the next big paragraph, if someone else would like to read. And here we begin to grasp one of the primary and fundamental aspects of physical individuation. Individuation as an operation is not linked to the identity of a matter, but to a state modification. Sulfur conserves its crystalline system only if a singularity is not presented to make it the less stable form disappear, to make, sorry, to make the less stable form disappear. A substance conserves its individuality when it is in the most stable state proportionate to its own energetic conditions. 
This state's stability becomes manifest due to the fact that if the energetic conditions remain the same, the state cannot be modified by the introduction of a germ presenting an initiation of a different structure relative to substances that are in a different state. This substance can, on the contrary, provide germs capable of involving a modification of the state of these substances. A stable individuality is thus formed when two conditions are met. A certain structure must correspond to a certain energetic state of the system, but this structure is not directly produced by the energetic state alone, for it is distinct from the latter. The initiation of structuration is critical, most often in crystallization germs, most often in crystallization germs are deposited from the exterior. Thus, there is a historical aspect to the manifestation of a structure in a substance insofar as the structural germ must appear. Pure energetic determinism does not suffice for a substance to attain its state of stability. The beginning of structuring individuation is an event for the system in a metastable state. Thus, in general, even in the simplest process of individuation, a relation takes place between the body under consideration and the temporal existence of beings external to it that intervene as the eventual conditions of its structuration. The constituted individual holds within it the synthesis of energetic and material conditions and of an informational condition, which is generally not imminent. Yeah, so here, um, again, this, this, whole sec this whole chapter that we're reading is on physical individuation um, and... and um, what makes the um, what makes physical individuation distinct is, or, or sorry, what what um, distinguishes physical individuation is this um, um, uh, relationship between the structure and the energetic uh, system, um, um, so that uh, crystallization is the the sort of paradigm case of. Um, uh, um, of uh, physical individuation, um, and and this is um, an example that uh, he he comes to to sort of get away from the uh, hylomorphic schema. Um, so uh, yeah, it's that relationship between um, between the uh, energetic conditions and then the um, the event of structuration, um, the, that historical aspect that I uh, um, mentioned earlier on. Um, so there's um, uh, yeah, there's there's a, an eventual or historical aspect to individuation. Um, it's always this precise individuation uh, of this entity. It's not um, it's not something that is purely determined by the uh, energetic conditions of uh, the system. I'm trying to figure out what he means by the third condition. Like at the very end of what we read, if the encounter between these three conditions has not taken place. And because it seemed earlier that there were two, right? There is the uh, energetic condition, and then which seems to be constitutive of, this, of, the, um, of the metastable solution uh, and then there is the germ, which is the informational condition. And I guess I'm trying to sort of piece out what the third one is. Um, well, in the sentence just before that, he seems to distinguish. So he says, uh, the constituted individual holds within it the synthesis of energetic and material conditions and of an informational condition, which is generally not imminent. So it seems like energetic uh, is one, material is, is the other. 
and then informational condition is the the third. So those are the three. Um, uh, so energetic conditions and material conditions are are distinct. Um, those are those are two separate uh, conditions. So I um, what I uh, assume that means, or, or how I understand it, is um, you have the the whatever the substance is. So sulfur in this case, um, and then you have the um, energetic conditions. So the temperature at which the whole um, uh, the whole system containing the sulfur is at. Um, and then the informational condition is the germ introduced into the the supersaturated or the or the uh, supercooled um, sulfur. Um, so yeah, those, those are the three conditions that have to meet for a, a process of physical individuation to occur. So I guess the energetic and the material are both imminent. It seems to this the uh, system that's individuating. And then the informational is what's supplied from outside. Generally not imminent. I guess that's how I'm, I'm taking that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so he, he does, so he does point, uh, he points out a, a couple pages earlier that, um, uh, within the, um, uh, super cooled, um, uh, system, you, you, you do have, um, um, the formation of uh, the spontaneous formation of these uh, germ crystals. Um, so they, they can, um, the, these, uh, the informational condition can be imminent in that sense, uh, in, in that particular case. Um, but that's not the, the general um, case. So in, in general, it's not imminent. Uh, it appears from outside um, through the introduction of a, a germ crystal. Okay, so let's go on uh, from the top of 71, uh, if the encounter between these three conditions. If the encounter between these three conditions has not taken place, the substance has not attained its stable state. It then remains in a metastable state. However, let's note that this genetic definition of individuation through the encounter of the three necessary conditions leads to the notion of the hierarchical relativity of states of individuation. Indeed, when there is a very large hiatus between the energetic state of a substance and its structural state, for example, sulfur in the state of supercooling, if a structural germ is presented, it can involve a change of the substance's structural state without, however, leading it to its state of absolute stability. If at a temperature of 90 degrees Celsius, supercooled sulfur receives a prismatic germ, its structural state changes and it becomes crystallized sulfur in the prismatic system. It has passed a stable state to a second metastable state. The second state is more stable than the first, but if a second structural germ intervenes, i.e. a crystal of uh, octahedral sulfur, the structural state still changes and the whole mass becomes octahedral sulfur. In this sense, we understand why crystalline supercooling constitutes a less precarious state than liquid supercooling. A structural germ has already been encountered, but it has deposited a structure that is incapable of absorbing into the structuration all the potential energy represented by the state of supercooling. Complete individuation is the individuation that corresponds to a full deployment of the energy contained in the system before structuration. It leads to a stable state. Conversely, 
incomplete individuation is that which corresponds to a structuration that has not absorbed all the potential energy of the initial non-structured state. It leads to a state that is still metastable. For the same substance, there are as many possible types of structures as there are hierarchical levels of metastability. For example, in phosphorus, we encounter three levels of metastability. Furthermore, it is important to note that the levels of individuation are perfectly discontinuous with respect to one another. The existence of energetic conditions of equilibrium between two levels immediately following one another in the hierarchical scale can neither obscure the structural discontinuity of these two levels, nor their energetic discontinuity. Thus, going back to the example of sulfur, when octahedral sulfur is brought to 95.4 degrees Celsius under atmospheric pressure, it is necessary to provide 2.5 calories per gram in order for it to be in order for it to transform into prismatic sulfur. Consequently, uh, there is a specific latent heat of transformation of octahedral sulfur into prismatic sulfur. This energetic discontinuity is also discovered by the fact that the melting point of the metastable variety is always lower than that of the more stable variety for all chemical types. Uh, so that sounds like um, non-manifest point earlier about there, there's reversibility, but it requires this input of energy in order for it to be reversible, unlike the uh, pendulums. Yeah, and and the pendulum case is a is a sort of idealization, of course, because in in real life you always have friction. Um, so, uh, what in theory is a reversible transformation uh, of of kinetic energy into potential energy, and vice versa. Um, in theory, that's reversible, but in practice, in in real life, there's always friction. Uh, so, some of the energy is transformed into heat, uh, which means that the you can't actually fully reverse the uh, the process um, without more an input of more energy. Um, uh, but it, uh, in this case, um, um, yeah, so you have um, uh, the the two forms of crystal um, in equilibrium at 95.4 Celsius. Um, and then um, uh, in order to uh, transform one into the other, you have to add more energy in this 2.5 gram uh, Two point five calories per gram. Um, uh, so there's a uh, uh, this specific latent heat of transformation. Um, uh, there's there's this energetic discontinuity um, between the two uh, the two forms. Uh, so even though they're in equilibrium, there's still a discontinuity between them. One thing I find interesting uh, is this interplay between the continuous and the discontinuous. Uh, so I guess my impression of, you know, when he discusses the pre-individual, the field, uh, I guess whenever I hear field, I think continuity, right? I think that's kind of natural, sort of like a fluid, right? That's, uh, has gradients, but, but doesn't have, you know, jumps and leaps, but it seems like uh, the discontinuity actually plays a really important role for him as well. And I'm really curious about, because I think it's a, it's a sort of, you know, it's a big kind of question, like how do those two things relate, right? I think you have a issue like that in, in physics with, uh, 
you know, fields and waves versus particles. Uh, so there's this moment, like, when, how, how can we even get a discontinuity within the field of, um, uh, of the pre-individual, let's say, or within a metastable field? And uh, I guess maybe part of it for Simondon has to do with these singular points that he discusses. I don't know actually if he's talked about it here, but it's a, it's a theme in the other book. Um, and so, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun on, maybe he'll get into that later, but it's interesting because it's coming up here, this bit about discontinuity. Yeah, I think here the, um, the, the discontinuity is... Um, um, it's a, a different kind of discontinuity. So it's a, a, a discontinuity of the of the different levels of individuation. So um, within physical individuation, um, the uh, the um, system can individuate at at different levels, and it's those levels of of, uh, of individuation that um, um, are discontinuous with each other. Um, uh, and so the different levels are are, are distinguished um, insofar as their um, one is is more stable than another, um, so that one system can pass into the other, um, uh, or sorry, one state of the system can pass into into the other um, with a, a, a release of energy, um, and um, yeah, so it's those states of the system that are discontinuous. Um, Whereas the uh, the the singularities that he talks about, um, I think that has to do with the um, historical aspect of individuation in in physical systems that, that he mentioned a little while uh, a little while ago. Um, so it's the way that um, uh, a physical system. Uh, um, which which state the physical system will will take on uh, is dependent on uh, that informational condition that that germ introduced from outside that um, that brings about the the transformation of state in the system. Uh, so whether whether or not it will um, so out of those discontinuous states that are possible for the system, um, the the singularity or that that informational condition will determine which one. Uh, gets actualized um, in in that system. Um, so that's the the sort of historical aspect. Uh, that's that's where the uh, the singularities come in. Okay, I think we have time for one more uh, of these big paragraphs or or one uh, one page, I guess, because it's yeah, this it's longer than one page. So let's let's do one more page if someone else can read uh, from the top of seventy two. Uh, therefore, it would seem that it is possible for there to be several levels of individuation underway throughout the ongoing changes of the allotropic forms of an element. Only one of them corresponds to a complete individuation. There are a finite number of these states, and they are discontinuous with respect to one another, both due to their energetic conditions and their structures. The effective existence of an individualized state results from the fact that two independent conditions are achieved simultaneously. An energetic and material condition resulting from an actual state of the system and an eventual condition 
which most often involves a relation to a series of events that arise from other system. In this sense, the individuation of an allotropic form begins with a historical type of singularity. Two flows of volcanic lava of the same chemical composition can each be at different points of crystallization. These are local singularities of the eruption that are translated through the particular genesis of this crystallization into the individuation of the allotropic form involved. In light of this, all the characteristics for a substance that result from this double energetic and historical conditioning are part of its individuality. Due to the studies of physical chemistry, the geologist knows based on the history of rocks how to interpret the relative size of the crystals that constitute them. A paste that seems amorphous but is finely crystallized indicates a rapid cooling of the substance. Large crystals, of which only the external form remains, and whose entire matter is divided into microscopic crystals of another system, indicate that there have been successive crystallizations, the first form having become metastable with respect to the second. From the simple point of view of allotropic forms, an examination of metamorphic rocks is also fruitful for learning about the historical and energetic conditions of geological phenomena, like that of magma, whose source is erupting. Kalkskist, quartzite, skist, gneiss, mica, skist, correspond fragment by fragment to a certain particular modality of endometamorphism or exometamorphism for a determined pressure, temperature, and degree of humidity. Thus, we see that the consideration of the energetic conditions of the singularities in the genesis of a physical individual does not in any way lead to recognizing mere types instead of individuals. On the contrary, it explains within the limits of a domain how the infinity of the particular values assumed by the magnitudes that express these conditions can lead to an infinity of different results. For example, the dimension of crystals for the same structure. Without borrowing anything from the domain of biology and without accepting the notions of common genus and specific difference, which would be too metaphorical it is possible, based on the discontinuities of conditions, to define types that correspond to domains of stability or metastability. Then, within these types, it is possible to define particular beings that differ from one another based on that which, within the limits of the type, is capable of a finer, sometimes continuous variation, like the speed of cooling. Okay, uh, yeah, you can stop there. Uh, thanks. Um, so here we have, uh, um, as, as Alan Yoshev mentioned in the chat, um, here he, he seems to group the uh, energetic and material conditions on one side uh, and then uh, uh, count them as, as, as one condition and then uh, put the um, uh, informational or eventual condition uh, on the other side. Um, 
So uh, in a previous um, in a previous one, in a previous uh, paragraph, he, he listed three conditions with um, uh, energetic and material uh, listed as, as separate conditions, but here he, he sort of counts them together. Um, so I guess it, it doesn't seem like it's that important um, whether you count this as, as three conditions or two conditions uh, for him. Uh, it's um, uh, what the, the key difference is the one between the eventual uh, or informational condition and, and the other two. That's the one that, um, that really um, uh, uh, is important to him. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, um, Alyosha, I think you're right that the, uh, uh, this image of the, the volcanic, uh, lava, uh, and it, it's, um, cooling and crystallization and, and it, it's historic, historicity. Um, I think that's, a um, uh, a better image, uh, of physical individuation. That's the type of image that he wants us to, to go towards, um, Rather than the uh, the brick um, as like the the sort of uh, power down example, um, and in particular this um, uh, this um, um, singularity uh, or the historicity of the the um, uh, transformation process is what allows us to um, to get beyond uh, species and genus type of um, uh, understanding. Um, and uh, this is something that he criticizes as well in the uh, uh, other book, the, the um, technical objects book. Um, and uh, um, in general, he's, he's very critical of species and genus um, types of uh, uh, approaches to um, understanding uh, uh, individuation, uh, which would go along with the hylomorphic schema, um, because the the form corresponds to um, the uh, the genus, uh, and then there's a specific difference. Um, um, but yeah, so here we have um, not we can classify different types of of stone or or rock um, based on their their uh, characteristics, but that's just sort of a, a shorthand for um, a historical process through which um, those different characteristics came to be realized, um, where you have um, uh, a process of crystallization and then a, a recrystallization in a different form, for example, um, that we can um, we can observe in the structure of the rock, um, so that um, the Individuation is historical, is always historical, I think is, is one of the key takeaways of this section that we read today. Um, it's always, uh, it always involves um, uh, the particularity of the individuation history uh, process um, uh, is, is part of what constitutes an individual in the, a physical individual. To be brief, I think like, uh what we have discussed so far is like a so um, all hello can you hear me yes now can you yeah yeah so all different all 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 kind of beings have different process individuations according to the singularity like and then 
what Simongdong is trying to uh, has been trying to is like to bring bringing bring some kind of a, um, specify the uh, particular elements to make a make us understood. So the point is that uh, while reading, the, sorry, generalization, categorization, genealogy of beings. Like if you think of a Fuku, Fuku like like a genealogy or like a genealogy or uh, categorization is like a meaningless in a way. The point is that every being has its own point of a singularity. Yeah, I wonder if um, um, we can we can compare compare this um, uh, to the genealogical method um, because that that is also um, if I remember correctly, um, the the gene genealogical method also has to do with um, a criticism of uh, uh, classification by um, species and genus, um, um, and it, it sort of points to that singularity of a, a concept that has its histori historicity to it. Um, um, so yeah, I think we can make some sort of comparison with that uh, as well. Um, but uh, I, I noticed that we're just at time now, uh, so I think we should wrap it up here. Um, and uh, yeah, so thank you everyone for participating and I'll see you all next week.